Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. As always, I'm your host, Eric Wenzel. On today's episode, we are doing a deep dive into Netflix anime, cyberpunk, edgerunners. This is a really great episode, and I've been wanting to talk about this show with my friend Joe Joukowsky for a little while now. And this was actually a live stream where we had discussed these ideas over on YouTube. This is only the second one we've done, so we're getting used to this still. But as always, we get deep into the weeds around not really just the show, but like what does this show make us think about that parallels our lives? And so if you're looking for a really direct interpretation of the elements of the show and things like that, it's not really going to happen in this one. Um, and it's a little bit our fault, but in any sense or in any case, it was still a really great episode because I think we talk about a lot of things that are really important to us from the elements of the story, like myth and what they represent in like the hero's journey kind of, you know, or rather a failed hero's journey. And on my end of the spectrum, as an interest in technology, we get into wearables and transhumanism and where that all goes if we continue to play with our technology like we are. And without any more preamble, please enjoy this deep dive into cyberpunk edgerunners. And I hope you all enjoy. Over the weekend, Joe, you had finished cyberpunk edgerunners and immediately got excited about it. And yep. um, I'd already watched it and have <laughs> known of cyberpunk because if you're a gamer, um, cyberpunk 2077 released by CD Projekt Red, uh, famously known for producing Witcher 3, which is another fantastic game, but unanimously took the ire of the internet during the pandemic in, as a gaming company. But over, I think about a month ago, Cyberpunk Edgerunners on Netflix was released, and they also simultaneously re released an update for the game of the same name. And this show has seemed to turn the tide of the negative press that <laughs> CD Projekt Red and Cyberpunk has gotten over the last year, which is wild. And yeah, okay, so when did the so when did the game come out? In 2020, I believe. Okay. Let me let me so in about 2020 the game came out. I remember seeing trailers for it and being stoked about the game. And then when the game came out, a bunch of people complaining because there were glitches and it wasn't holding up to what their expectations were. And, that's buggy mess is yeah. at the highest level. And that's was shocking because of how well that uh, particular studio had done with The Witcher. Uh, no, it sounds like they turned it around. I mean, everyone that I hear talking about it now says that it's awesome. Yeah, and a lot of it came down to, this is kind of like insider baseball, but if you're a gamer and you like <laughs> cyberpunk, you probably already know some of this, but... The the problem with the game was basically that they were trying they were spread too thin with trying to produce a game like a, a next gen game, but make it compatible for all ver versions of the hardware. Yeah. So you basically had to make the game work on multiple platforms, two of which were the PS4 and the Xbox uh, Series X, or I might be getting that wrong, Xbox One, maybe. I don't remember what it's called anymore. It's been so long since I played Xbox. Yeah, yeah. But in any case, those are 10-year-old hardware, and you're trying to make a game that is running the newest, you know, graphic fidelity and all that kind of stuff. 
it, you're effectively trying to make two different versions of the game that are completely comparable, but you're kind of toning down the hardware, you know, not dialing. Right. But and you're on a time crunch. Time. Right. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're on a time crunch. You're trying to make, in some sense, multiple different versions of the same game. I don't know how big of a studio they are. I don't know the top of my head. That they make is The Witcher, right? Besides this now. Yeah, they did The Witcher, and that was their biggest game for a long time. Um, and th they really hadn't done too much else. Like, the history of the studio itself, CD Projekt Red, was a Polish porting company. And so what that means is basically they would get the rights of other games that were, like, from Sony or other consoles back in the day, and you would they would do their job to basically take the localization and port it over to Polish or something like that until they got the rights for the Witcher games, which they did Witcher 1, 2, and then 3 being their kind of breakout successor. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at this. Uh, so this is the list of their games. Like, yeah. I mean, the first game that was theirs, 2007, The Witcher. Yeah. Then it, The Witcher 2, a bunch of different variations in DLC. Same thing with Witcher 3, and then Cyberpunk yeah. in 2020. So producing their own content, they've really never done this before. Or rather, they're newer to it than, you know, other massive studios. Yeah, I really wonder how big of a how big of a company they are. I'm not going to spend all night trying to figure that yeah. out. But I'm, curious. I'm just giving some preamble so people who are interested in the, in the histories of this stuff. Because I think it shows, too, that the level of care and, and what they're building in, in Cyberpunk isn't just something that's like, oh, we just we just have this cool IP, let's just do something with it. That is kind of rampant in creative domains right now. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a really nice. It makes me think more and more that all the creativity, the real artistry, has migrated out of traditional media and into gaming. It's the the original artwork. Mm -hmm. The the creativity and narrative. The Last of Us was a amazing narrative, oh, like man. really subtle and brilliant. And I mean, I mean, the Netflix is making. I think it's Netflix is making. A, it's HBO. HBO is doing the show. HBO. Okay, that gives me hope. Actually, <laughs> yeah. it's HBO. Uh, the guy who plays the Mandalorian. I forget his name. Why? How did? I... Yeah, he's doing. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I like that pick for that character but whatever uh yeah i mean point, it is what it is right <laughs> right the the broader point here is that a lot of the original originality and creativity seems to have moved into the gaming world and yeah. the fact that this show is is as successful as it is is indicative of the fact <laughs> that this is the case that same thing with Arcane, the other successful. I was going to bring that up. You read my mind. <laughs> um, show on Netflix that won an Emmy. I think it won an Emmy. Yeah. But that's animated, right? That's based off of another video game. I, I think that the writers on these come from the gaming studios too, or at least they're. Yeah. It, Arcane did. Arcane is insane. So if, if for those interested in Arcane, we could probably do a whole separate episode on Arcane. We should put a pin in that and not go too deep. Um, but there's a series on Netflix called Bridging the Rift, and it's all about, it's like five episodes that are about a half hour to 30 or 40 minutes, like 30, 40 minutes, maybe long, 
kind of breaking down every aspect of the journey to take a video game IP, like taking characters from a video game that you really don't have, you know, the full 360 narrative of them and saying, okay, how do we not only live up to the fan expectations that have spent hours and hours with these characters, but also make it a compelling story for those people who don't have the background knowledge of playing these characters in a game. They yeah. also make it exciting and, and all that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, they, the at least with Riot Games, who is the parent of the animation studio that did it, is called Fortiche. They're in France and they are a spinoff of Riot. They're like they're parented to them and have worked with all the trailers and everything they've done is from the ground up as an animation <laughs> studio. They're not just some outsider animation studio that's like, hey, guys. We need you to do this, right? Like, it's instead, it's this like way different idea. And my camera's dragging me now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it's like this. It to me, it's really exciting to see this because you get a whole bunch of creators who really, really, really care about the core audience and how to translate these characters beyond the medium which which they were born. Mm. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree that that's happening. <laughs> I see, uh, perhaps we could provide contrast to this, right? What, it isn't that all creative writing and uh, the kind of artistry, even visual arts, have left film or television. That's definitely not the case. No. But you have a proliferation of uh, sort of novel how do you it, it's this it's it's not novel but not original content and so <laughs> if what novelty is is simply unseen before like that there's enough that there's some version of this that's oh this hasn't happened um mm -hmm. but original is something like pushing the genre forward in an interesting way and really it's new in that it's uh it it's it extend the culture beyond where it is, where novelty is new, but entirely contained within the culture. And you have this novel content. Uh, I'm getting this from these distinctions between newness and novelty from Ian McGilchrist, who looks at the differences between the hemispheres of the brain and the right hemisphere deals with this kind of newness, this originality, and it sees things in context and it builds up off of what the old thing was and creates something mm, okay. unique and tries to answer a question or something like this. Whereas novelty can't actually generate anything new on its own accord. It comes from the left hemisphere. It deals with abstractions. It deals with what the right hemisphere gives it. So instead of being able to generate something new, all it can do is take a bunch of things and mix them up in some sense. And so you can have the Lord of the Rings um, in a new series but it's totally not new. It's just novel. It's like, okay, well, we can put, you know, any checkbox of identities thrown into or any number of identities to check off boxes into the show and masquerade as if this is something creative or original or interesting. Right. And so it's like, it's yeah. like reskinning something, right? Like to, to yes. kind of simplify it, it's like you, you you have like the shape of a thing, right? Like you could say, um, like taking your car and giving it a 
a different look, right? Like covering it with leaves to camouflage it, quote unquote. The core essence of that thing is still a car. You can't say it's a bush. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, that's the problem with a lot of like the, the shortcutted way of media. Yeah. And it's even worse. Like to to carry on with your analogy, it's even worse because the, the, the central core of the artwork, the original artwork has decayed, right? It's not even there anymore. So it's like putting 20 inch rims on a rut bucket and pretending like you bought a new car. That's bullshit. (laughs) Right. And a lot of these shows are just remakes, reruns, rehashes of old ideas that are uninteresting with a new paint job on top of it and pretending like it's unique or spectacular. Mm -hmm. And, and they're just, and not to go too far into the weeds on this, but when you criticize the show for that's what it is, they use their camouflage paint and is sort of like a battery. How do you even say this? It's like, they actually use the political uh, check boxes as camouflage for bad writing or cover for bad writing. That like when the criticisms come, then they say, oh, well, you just don't like this because you don't like the identity group we included. Therefore, your any number of phobias that you want to say. Uh, and right, it's a slur against the audience and the critics of a bad show when it has nothing to, it's disingenuous. It has nothing to do with that at all, besides the fact that people are calling it out for <laughs> being cheap. <laughs> right. For not following through with the, what the audience, right? I, I think people forget in, in some sense, like whenever you create a thing, and I think this will be a perfect way to like segue directly into cyberpunk. But whenever you create a thing, regardless of what the creator's intentions were, the audience themselves are going to come up with some sort of idea of what the essence of your thing is, right? Like the essence of Star Wars or the essence of Lord of the Rings or in the case of what we've been talking about with animation is like the essence of Arcane and and League of Legends and the essence of Cyberpunk. And so if you diverge too far from those things, people respond not to do a pandemic analogy but like an immune system and they're and they're not going to be able to really articulate why but they're going to be mad and they're going to be angry and they're going to and they're going to like almost feel like rabid in some sense like like and and it's fair that the creators and the other side of this are going to like respond in a really defensive posturing and it's not to give them an out but it's just human nature right and it's how we treat these stories and and things because we internalize them. It's we, we we can't help but think in narrative. Yeah. And people love these things. These are things people love and, and that have a meaning to them that actually matters. Right? It matters that we fall in love with certain characters because they teach us to be something more than what we are, to be better, to give us a star to point at, right? These things matter. But when you play with these things, these characters that people have resonated with, these worlds that people love, as if they have no meaning, then you're, you're sort of, an, how do you even say it? You're almost like an iconoclast in that you're taking something sacred, a sacred image, and you're breaking it. And of course, people are going to respond negatively to that. Yeah. I mean, I think I sent you this text earlier today, but in a different context, but it's like... Mm-hmm. 
once an idea it gets a, a certain level of recognition or has been around long enough, right? Like in older stories that have been with us for 40, 50, 60 years, we have to, I think, instead of just looking at them as old and outdated and, and you know, we might need to revise them to met, better match our current sentiment, I think we should look at them as like archaeological artifacts and say, hey, this may not reflect today's period, but it reflects something that's still universal about today, like human experience at a higher level. And right. we have to be proper stewards of these ideas as learning tools, but it doesn't have to say anything about us today. It could just be what it is. Yeah. And one of the things that's necessary about narrative is that it allows us to express timeless things about the human condition. And that if you want to update something, if you want to update the Lord of the Rings, if you want to update any show that you're thinking about, if you want to update cyberpunk, because it came from a role, like a, a tabletop game that was called cyberpunk punk 2020. And then they made the game in 2020. that was called cyberpunk 2077. So God only knows what will happen in 2077, <laughs> but, uh, but if you want to do that, what you do is you can update the world to some degree to reflect the conditions of our time and then ask what are people like under those conditions. Now, a fantasy world is a little harder because fantasy is already divorced enough from reality by definition that, <laughs> that it's, it, it gives it a lot of freedom to express metaphorically human experiences in a way that something that's like a historical drama or something can't. It's too, too, too concrete. All, all of this, all of this is to say at the preface <laughs> that our culture right now has a problem where it has, it has a newness and novelty problem. Newness is a genuine originality that builds off of the old and novelty is the subversion of expectations. And it's a bunch of tricks and games to per, to mimic, to mimic true originality. Um, things like the Lord of the, the new Lord of the Rings show are an example of that, but cyberpunk edge runners is totally original okay. in the newness sense that it really nails a genre. It moves the genre in an interesting way and, and it kind of, and it even blends things because it's an anime. It's also, and it, it's a cyberpunk thing. And obviously, even in like Blade Runner, one of the yep. classic cyberpunk uh, movies, there's this kind of strange Eastern and Western blending where you hear Chinese being spoken or Japanese being spoken on the streets with neon Atari like advertisements going on. And this kind of turns that, that up it, by making it an anime. <laughs> it, it, it is now very Japanese. Even more so than the the other ones, but it's it's cool. So that's initial thoughts. I thought the show overall was a very it had enough. It was very interesting. I really like the narrative. I like the characters. Um, it starts out sort of like just a typical anime, uh, but it grows. I, I like the animation. Okay, I think at times it's whatever. Uh, anything that they did with the three D cars. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like it? 
No, it was just, it just didn't look like physics. It didn't look like physics. It looked silly. And often they took me out of it. Yeah, they, they definitely weren't doing the physics, uh, or they, they were playing with physics. They weren't, they weren't, be, they were being very anime, right? Like, they, they just said, yeah, they're in a car, but we're just going to do things however we want to, you know, like jumping over things or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I have to agree, though, with what you said with how it started. I think it did, um, it started out very typical anime and kind of, you know, and I don't know where, you know, I, I kind of, like I said, I rewatched some of this in prior to doing this so that I could have more fresh in my mind. And part of me was like curious why it's kind of had like a slow burn for the first few episodes. And, and I don't know if that was just because they were trying to find the voice of the show or not alienate like an anime audience too fast because of the direction they wanted to go later on because it is pretty over the top. <laughs> in in oh, yeah. the, the stylization toward like toward the midpoint to, and through the climax of the show for the yeah. season, it is um, certainly an adult show. Yes, that's right. It does not. It, it is. It is gory as hell. There's nudity. People taking drugs. All kinds. It's of very stuff. real. Like, like a lot of times in in like cyberpunk or dystopian things, you kind of get like the the upper echelon type stuff like you get like what is it like to be the rich person and things like that and they barely talk about poor people or maybe they show like just you know sweeping shots of the ghetto or or, or things like that right like they don't really immerse you in it and in this show you're basically in it from the moment it starts to the moment it ends and you get like this bottom up viewpoint of what it's like to live in this kind of society and and i don't know if this is like the right way to put it but it, like i told you this yesterday it was it feels like capitalism turned all the way up to 11 mm. you know it's like what happens when we let these megacorps or as they call them in the show they call them megacorps but like corporations we would see today you just let them keep doing what they're gonna do i thought about this a lot this was a huge <laughs> theme that popped out for me and i'm so happy you talked about this so it's like um <laughs> That was absolutely what I was seeing. I was seeing, uh, oh, th this show to me got some response where people were like, whoa, this is crazy. And look at how cool that is. But this didn't strike me as cool at all. This struck me as horrifying. And then what was going on with their, in some sense, warning about just talking about imagining this up is that there's this, it's like already we have corporations that have realized that human beings are a resource to be exploited. And instead of, instead of oil barons drilling on native lands, you have uh, Facebook drilling into your like your mind to extract your attention. Yeah. Okay. Human beings in that regard, in that philosophy, are not seen as people. They're seen as natural resources or minerals or whatever, what have you, right? So there's this extension of territory, like acceptable commodities. The, the, the extension of the, the territory of acceptable commodities into human beings themselves. If you, that's what we have already right now. And the consequences are things like uh, the increased cutting and suicide rates of teenage girls as a result of Instagram. Okay. So children 
are dying so that a mega corporation can make money off of their attention. Okay. That's now. That's right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you play that long enough and it turns out your attention isn't the only thing that can be commodified. If they can convince you to trade in your human arm for a robotic arm, then Apple can put out a new iArm 18 or 19 every year, unless you upgrade, you're falling behind. And so in the same way, now they can use your body as a means of commodities and making a profit. And you just keep playing that game, keep playing that game until like multiple characters. And I think Adam Smasher is the, he's not the main villain, but he's like this background villain that shows up. Yeah, very interesting character. Uh, you've replaced your entire being. And that you're just a machine. Right. And there's nothing human left about you. Got it. I, this discussion is like, it's like the sweet spot for me because I, I've loved the idea of transhumanism. That's what you're talking about. Like, or where this is rootedly philosophically is where's the line of human go, you know, as we use more and more technologies, how, like, at what point do you cease to be a human anymore and become something other than just human, right? Um, it's almost like, where is your soul? If if you say you just change everything about you that like all the biology, flesh and bone, and all that remains is maybe like your brain. Are you human? I mean, I would say like, I mean, if one, this is a problem because your brain and your body aren't separate things and your body's exactly. have a, lot, a lot of thinking actually, right? It's not thinking that you have, you are conscious of, right? It's unconscious information processing that's occurring, but these two things are not separate things. Like for example, there's a, um, there's studies that now are showing that there's a connection between your gut flora. So the bacteria in your stomach and depression. Okay. So the way that you're thinking is being impacted by your digestive system. Yep. <laughs> so if you replace your digestive system with some kind of weird computer version, presumably that will change the way that you think. So they're becoming less human with every piece you lose. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing is that people seem to think that we're more compartmentalized than we are. Human beings aren't just human beings. A human being is a mammal and a great ape and a human being. And that these are stacked layers of, that have accrued off during the evolutionary process to produce an emergent property that is the human being in total. That we aren't just human, we're human and our entire lineage. It's just that that process is what we mean really by humanity. So if you start removing bits of that process <laughs> or you replace all the, all the people with the computer stuff, then what you've done isn't allowed for the human process to continue into the future. You've disrupted it and replaced it with something entirely new because it doesn't preserve the remaining of the thing. 
or the, yeah. the beginning road, that whole trajectory is annihilated. And what, so that's, I think you just lose the person entirely. That, and what scares me about the world of cyberpunk and where I think we might be heading, if we keep playing this game, and that we don't understand what consciousness is, we just don't understand it. That what might happen is that if consciousness is an emergent property that's dependent on a bunch of biological interactions that we don't understand, and we continue to replace people part by part by part, what might happen is that even if these computers are so sophisticated, you can't tell the difference between computer Joe and original biological Joe, at some point you'll replace one more part and I'll turn off. But you then you'll give in a zombie version of me, this machine automata with no experience whatsoever, then you can't distinguish between lights on and lights out, masquerading as Joe Joukowsky when in reality, I But I'm it's dead. fine, Joe. The megacorps will just tell you how to behave. At that point, there won't be people. All that you'll have is a dystopian nightmare where all human beings are dead. No one, <laughs> and it's just a bunch of lifeless machine zombies walking around interacting with each other as if they're living things. The end. And we've just commodified ourselves out of existence. Yeah. I mean, we, we effectively turn ourselves into the robots, right? <laughs> or rather, like the like a, some sort of pseudo hive mind where there is no agency, but it's just... It's just the machine. Yeah. It's just whatever the machine thinks you should be move it, doing, right? Um, you know, and, and I, I, I honestly got this sense of, like, the negativity in this show, or rather the dystopian of this show, it, it's pretty pervasive. Um, because it's like, at one level, you could think about it at this philosophical level, but then you could look at it just how, like, the struggles of the people. And it's like, you could either be, like, a cog in the machine, and so you're either someone who lives in the gutter, and you're just there until something bad happens to you because you're caught in some sort of conflict. You join a gang, or you're somewhere in the middle, either as, like, the corporate lapdog guy, I can't remember his name, who's who's the fixer, is what his title is, and he's basically just like... Oh, a, Faraday. Faraday, there we go. I knew it was like an electrical concept, and I couldn't remember who. <laughs> but, you know, you have Faraday, who's kind of like the middleman, where he gets paid by the big corporate stuff, and then you have the edge runners, or cyberpunks, who are kind of like these pseudo-rebellious, autonomous people who kind of fight and scrape to be top dog, whatever that means. But it comes at a cost of you have to sacrifice your body and augment yourself to accomplish these missions because the adversaries you're going to go against are doing the exact same thing. So you get this like, like small-scale arms race of who's upgrading themselves more and more until you basically go fucking insane. Because that's the only outcome that, that and the stakes of this are literally thrown in front of you in, in episode one. And you don't even really understand it because it's so like, what the, like, what am I watching? <laughs> but it, it, like the, the, the psychological stakes of what this game does to people and why you shouldn't want to play it are really apparent. But it takes you a second to kind of get up to speed. And I think it's what makes this show great because it's by the end of the show, you kind of sit there and you're like, 
Oh God. <laughs> what this whole thing led to, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's the same, obviously spoilers for people that are missing. Cause we're going to talk about the end, but yes. Uh, it's the same symbolically narratively as Darth Vader because oh wow Anakin is a flesh and blood human being and is ostensibly a good kid and then his mom dies so he loses somebody that he loves and then he has the risk of losing somebody else that he loves right now he becomes desperate to have power over life and death yeah reality right he wants to be able to prevent the death of the person he loves um but this concept becomes all turned up so it, it goes star wars asks the question what happens to somebody who wants power over life and death and the answer is you become you lose your humanity or he gets piece by piece replaced with machine parts you become a monster because Anakin as Darth Vader confuses this sort of mastery of death with manipulation of death. He it's it's like in his soul, he thinks that the killing of all these people and that he can do this with impunity, with ease and throwing things around is a symbol. It's reflecting back to him the fact that he has power over this thing. Like the the action of murder for him is a display of his delusional control over life and death. Hmm. So he becomes a machine. He loses his humanity and he becomes a monster and he still loses everyone he loves. Except for his son and there's an all part in redemption. You make the deal with the devil, right? <laughs> okay. So the main character, David, is a young man who loses his mother. So he is a good person, by the way, in a, in a terrible world. <laughs> yeah, a good person, in, ostensibly good person in a terrible world. And um, he's trapped by something like a slightly different problem, which is he still wants that, like Anakin has um, Padme to save, he has Lucy, right? And he succeeds in that regard. She doesn't die. But the consequence is still that he slowly loses his humanity, starts to go insane, <laughs> right? He becomes an addict, right? He's an addict to this like power thing like that's going on. Fantasy. And, and it results in his total, it, the, the cool thing I liked about the show is that it's, it isn't progress. It, it looks like progress in that he's, that he's putting on all this armor, but it isn't healing. He never heals from his mom. He never does whatever. And you can see that when, as in the tip of his insanity, when he's losing his humanity again, it's a regression. And like Oedipus, he returns back to his mother again as he's standing on top of the Arasaka Tower, losing his mind, saying, look, mom, I made it to the top. But he's still trapped Wow. In, under her aegis, under her, like, power over him. His mother starts all the power over him. He's still infant. He's still infantile boy at the moment that he dies. He never overcomes. reconciled with the loss of his mother. He yes. Everything. He never reconciles the loss with his mother. 
He never gets out from under her shadow and her expectations of him. It just never happens. He's living her dream the entire time. And it becomes evident at the very end when he's turned himself into some psychotic thing. He's mutilated himself to achieve this moment. I mean, he says it. human at the very end. Like he, he's yeah. just a torso in a giant mechanical like arms and legs, you know, like he's barely even who he is anymore or barely recognizable as a human. Yeah. And he, he follows the Oedipus myth. Great. <laughs> because, because he, it's like, it might be, yeah, he follows the Oedipus thing. Great. Like he goes out there, he runs away from his, this, this, the, the fates are another example of this kind of maternal thing, but they're associated with like, obviously the mother in this, in that story, because the fates say that Oedipus will sleep with his mother. He says, absolutely not. And he runs away. And then he returns right back to her at the end of that thing. And so it's not, he doesn't sleep with his mom, but what happens is he still has a reunification with the maternal domain, the psychological maternal domain right before he dies. Interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's a failed hero. He doesn't progress. <laughs> I, I kind of saw a slightly different like prophecy when he first meets Lucy um, and the one quote where she was like, she's like hesitant to, to kind of like welcome into this cyberpunk edge runner way of life. Cause she's like, you don't seem like this kind of person. Like she's like, I don't know. If, like it's almost like she's regretful because she feels guilty already. Cause she knows how this ends. And basically right. she says, he's like, in this city, being a cyberpunk or being an edge runner, it's not about how you live. It's about how you die. And I was like, oh God, this is exactly three, by the way, <laughs> that this, <laughs> she knows exactly what he is. She knows exactly what he needs. She's a perf. she's a very good example of an anima. Because the, the union anima is the part of yourself that entices you into development in under healthy conditions. It can, you can have anima possession where, um, you basically think of yourself as that thing, uh, you conflate you yourself, your whole self with the experience of the anima and that can create a whole bunch of different problems. But, um, one of which is that you'll have a very, uh, like a feat or effeminate um, male who's kind of soft in the way that the anima will speak to him softly or a very like masculine and, um, uh, like combative almost female. If she's animus possessed, you thought that there was an animus in women and anima and men. Okay. Um, but in story, the anima is presented as the thing that pulls you forward. It entices you into development. It's the goal, it's Ariadne, because she, in, she, it's Ariadne's thread and Ariadne. Ariadne is this woman that's enticing um, Theseus forward into, through the labyrinth, this golden flickering thing that captures his attention to, to, to pull him forward. Okay, so Lucy's glowing hair. Multiple times. <laughs> right, she, she is this glowing thing that's capturing his attention, and she tells him what he needs to do and what he needs not to do. You can call the anima literally means soul. And we get words like to animate, right? To be animated is to come alive, right? To have a soul, right? And so she, she's the, his soul telling him 
this is a bad idea for you. And then when he goes along with it anyway, she's trying to like get him to grow up and like do these things. And like, I just want you like, ah, she's like, I just want you. I don't need you to do anything for me. Right. (laughs) He fails. He fails as a hero because he stays trapped. She should entice him away from his mother. Hmm. She doesn't. It fails. That fails to occur. He ostensibly goes for her, but ultimately regresses back into the mother character and the anima moves on. Right? He never, if he had a real union with her, he would have left the game and they would have gone off to the moon together, but that didn't right. happen. Instead, he's on the top of the tower losing his mind right before he gets dismembered, which is another totally mythological thing. Is always happened before these mythological characters reunify with the great mother figure, they're usually lose their minds and are dismembered. And so the same thing happens in the show. <laughs> he gets pulled apart limb by limb, and then he gets killed. That's ridiculous <laughs> and disturbing. <laughs> but also this show is doesn't pull any punches, as we probably <laughs> outlined. And that's what happens to real people. Real people, what they'll do is if they stagnate, they'll stay in the same place. They become lethargic. And their, their identity, their, their force, their mode of force is dissolved in a vat of nothingness, right? So they, they are decomposed, their self is decomposed, and they become as if they're dead. And in the past, they probably would have actually gotten you killed. Okay, corpses. I mean, honestly, the show does a great job of illustrating what it's like for those kinds of people, right? The, in, the, in the show, they call this cyberpsychosis. But... The and the the part I'm remembering, I think it's either episode four or five. That homeless dude who's peeing into a uh, a barrel, and the one guy's antagonizing him, like, "Bro, I don't want you peeing out here in the street. Like, go do this somewhere else." And he just keeps pushing the buttons until this crazy guy loses it and blows his head off. (laughs) And it, it it. I mean, the whole setup for this this episode is crazy because it's like it starts out with the scene of David seeing liquid droplets in slow-mo. You don't have any context for this until like halfway through the episode. And then you're like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> but David freezes again. And he does this multiple times. And, and kind of going back to what you're saying about being trapped by the visions of his mother and things like that, he clearly has PTSD. Um from the experiences of how his mother died tragically. And and it's like almost every time there's like this extreme violence up until when he, when he kind of um, reconciles the violence and, and kind of takes on the role as leader of the, of the squad, he doesn't care. Like the violence is whatever. Like he's, he's like totally numb to it at a point. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I keep seeing, like I kept seeing these like moments in like the first half of the show where you're just like, God damn it. He's got it. Like, like you, I, it's like, I, I, I could feel the pain, but then he was clearly not like resolving those things or even having an outlet for those things. Cause like every time it would come up in, in talking with another person or he just would brush it away in some way, or just, you know, just go on to the next important thing, whatever that was. And it's like, it's like screaming at you in the face. You're like, this is going to end bad. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I love that they didn't pull any punches, that um, that it does end bad. <laughs> that 
they're, they don't glow. It, it's very violent and it's stylized violence. And maybe you might say that in some way that that's glorifying it. Um, but it, in the end of the day, the fact that it still happens to all the characters you love is like a stark reminder that, yeah, this is terrifying. Yeah. This is, it's like, is that the world you want to live in? <laughs> is that really what you're looking forward to? Is it, if we don't wake up to where we're heading with what we've done with our technology just now, we will sleepwalk into a nightmare. Right. It's like Dodo's walking off to the cliff, right? Like we don't know what, what's coming. And if we just keep blindly walking forward, <laughs> we're going to walk ourselves right off. <laughs> yeah. and, and it might not be like, like there's a chance we walk off the cliff and it's like nothing, right? It could be like pillows or something. But there's also a really good chance that it's like a lava pit or shark infested waters or. There is, there is no chance. There is no chance whatsoever that we walk, as far as I'm concerned, that you walk off the cliff and it's pillows. You don't get anywhere good on accident, yeah. but you can get a lot of horrible places on accident. And so what it looks like to me is that why I, part of why I like the show and why I like most shows is because it's indicative of something that's going on. And that what's happening right now is we have a proliferation of abstract information that is apparently of no consequence so that I can go on 8chan with a bunch of maniacs and put, post the most vile shit. And it's all a silly game, right? And even when one of those people snaps and videotapes live video streams, a mass shooting, as has happened on that forum, People will be going, oh, hell yeah, dude, nice reload. As if the whole thing is an inconsequential game. Okay. We have become so sick with our, because we've been inundated with, with it's, it's deceitfully inconsequential bullshit in that it's, it is consequential, but it tricked because of its nature. It tricks us into thinking it means nothing. People say Twitter isn't real life, but what they should say is Twitter isn't a representative sample of the population, but there are consequences to Twitter in that it's at very least exacerbating the fury of our politics right? that are certainly real. It is real life. And it holds the attention span of people who are important decision makers in the world. Yes. And, yeah, it, and it directs their actions and you have news media outlets next to what some, a senator says, posting five random tweets from who the fuck knows as if this is news, as if that person, the geopolitical analyst that I should be listening to, that's Joe Schmo from down the street. He's drunk every Tuesday. Why should I listen to anything he says? This is absurd. We've elevated, elevated uh, faceless idiots online to those, the status of pundit. And now our pundits look like faceless idiots. And we're playing this game as if it's all bullshit, as if none of this fucking matters, as if all of this is just some silly joke and it's just clicks on a mouse and type it on a keyboard. But we're, this, is, this is an illusion that is covering our eyes as we walk one step at a time to the edge. If we don't wake the fuck up, <laughs> we're going to be in a really bad place. 
focused. And this show, I thought, did a good job of illustrating one of the nightmare places we could end up. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the dangers of gamifying too much, right? Because we've taken the idea of gamification things where like everything just about number go up, right? I mean, I'm, I'm being tongue in cheek by saying that, but that's how people treat these things, right? It's like, oh, well, I have 10,000 new followers today, or I have, you know, X amount of new likes or whatever, right? Like you just can play these games without realizing that you, what you say and do on platforms can impact real people, right? And, and it's the same thing, like thinking about edge cases, right? Or, or where technology can go with what you're saying to kind of pull it back to the show is, is around like AR and VR where in the show they have a thing called BDs or brain dances. Mm. And what these basically are are kind of like, just imagine all VR on steroids, but they're recordings for the most part. And you could, you just basically put on a visor and you can feel and witness the POV of another person. And in the show they have what are called XBDs, which are like explicit or illegal um, BDs. and these are like all the way up until the moment someone dies or porn or graphic type things or you name it, right? And it's like not out of the realm of possibility to think that that would be a real thing in what, five years, if not sooner? Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> this is horrifying. That we, I mean, think about just the porn industry already, right? You have a handful of streaming sites that put out an inordinate amount a video that they can't keep up with just like YouTube. Nobody can keep up with it, what's on there, right? But they have rules like no child pornography, no violent stuff, no you know, bestiality, no this horrendous, like twisted shit can't get on there. But there's some fucking website that's out there, right? And, and as this progresses, we're already seeing VR pornography occurring. Right, so you can just get yourself more into this fake world where it, it's even more can like more bullshit. That's what we need. More bullshit. <laughs> more noise. And, <laughs> and it's like, okay, so the think of like think of uh mid journey. So mid journey is an AI that you can put in prompts and it pulls from image, images from across the internet to generate an image that approximate approximates your prompt. So I can say Eric Wenzel and maybe it'll I mean, it won't actually do this because there's not enough photos of him <laughs> or of you, uh, yeah. but like uh, Eric Wenzel. Oh, let, it'll pull up all the photos of Eric Wenzel. It'll amalgamate them together. And now we have a new picture of Eric Wenzel. Okay. We can say Eric Wenzel skydiving. And then it takes all the skydiving photos and all the Wenzel photos and it throws them together. And hey, we got a little Wenzel doing a skydiving, even though he's never been. But yeah. Mid Journey has rules about no pornography, no violence, no these things. So it, it bans some props. But somebody, who knows that they can make money off of this in a year from now with an equally powerful AI is going to allow for that. And then any number of sick fantasies are going to get it. But then they're going to say, oh, well, we, we have a porn mid-journey. It's the new porn of mid-journey, like AI that just generated it. I guarantee you some and website out there is already working on this algorithm thing that's like going to be real freaking good you know, at it. Guaranteed. And when they have boundary, Somebody else who's even a little more unscrupulous is going to even remove even more of the barriers. And then you're going to have all manner of sick shit flooding people. Yeah. And, and this, this is, you could, in, in another five years, they're going to be able to do it with video. You're going to have videos that are going to be generated in the same way, using AI in the same way. Oh, and yeah. you'll get more and more and more sick. And you'll get better and better VR. 
And then suddenly you have XBDs just like in this in this show. And they don't even need to be real anymore. Like you won't even need to make real memories. It'll be, you know, pseudo, you know, hyper-realistic POV things, right? Like, I mean, I can already see this going into the video game world like we started this discussion on where you, you just put on a goggle set and it, you, you'll be like you're on, you know, some battlefield that never actually existed, but it, it'll basically look and feel just like it's real, right? Like, and you'll get real good at reloading in a video game, right? Like you could, I could just imagine it, right? Like add in some haptic gloves and all of a sudden it feels like you're you're actually gripping the, this stock and who knows, maybe we'll figure out some way to like do heat so you could feel like your barrel heating up or something. I don't know, but and, and imagine what will happen to people when when they can practice committing mass murder, right, in a way that's inconsequential, such that it tricks their monkey brain into thinking that this would be. It makes that it the moment that it the illusion becomes indistinguishable from reality when you put on that headset, then reality becomes indistinguishable from a fantasy, right. And if you've been practicing doing some nightmarish shit in the fantasy world, that will bleed into reality. <laughs> and that's a perfect point to bring up because when David is put through that BD where he um, is going through like cyberpsychosis, like he's experiencing it for himself, like he's not playing a character. It's actually him acting things out. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Here's, here's like, to me, it felt like if you have a foundation, right? Like a building. And in this case, the foundation of that building is David's psyche. And he's being tested in the sense of like, hey, let's see what happens if we put you under this extreme psychological stress. Oh, look, he's cracking like any normal human being would. <laughs> And you make it into a freaking game to see how many times can we go until you break. It's almost like living in a society where you're under extreme psychological pressure. It's just a matter of time before you break, right? And that's like the problem with all of this stuff. And it's almost like the, the a tangential problem to this is most people don't have a governing system. Like, like the way I think about it is like, um, like in cars or... Um, in a lot of technology, the designers themselves put in limit switches such that a piece of equipment, maybe it can go fast like a car, right? Like a car can go until the engine destroys itself and rips apart, itself apart. But that's really bad design if you just let it do that because then you have to replace a whole car and possibly danger a whole bunch of people if it has a catastrophe like that. So a lot of times in technology, you you engineer in limit switches so that you can govern your to safely operate a piece of equipment. But with all of this proliferation of technology and information explosion and whatnot, there is no limit switch that each individual has installed in their brain. You could just sit in front of YouTube or TikTok or any of these other things and just let things autoplay 24-7. And you just lose your fucking mind because, you know, the more you, the more you watch, the more it learns what you like. And it's just like, well, I'm just going to give you more of what you like. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm giving you what you want. And it pretends to, to be, you know, hat in hand. I'm doing you a service <laughs> when in reality it's not. <laughs> and it's up to the individual to decide how best to govern themselves. 
But right now, nobody's doing that. There's nobody who's taken the responsibility to help people make that governor. It's wild. Yeah. And in like the, the problem that I'm like personally, that I'm more and more like trying to stick down, like trying to really focus on to, to deal with is the problem that I think one of the reasons people aren't taking responsibility for things is a meaning issue. Mm -hmm. It's that they, there's a meaning crisis, but I think what, and there's a lot of people talking the meaning crisis and the death of God and all this. I understand this. Uh, but I think that one of the smarter people than me are handling that piece. I suspect that an additional issue is this continued proliferation of abstractness that is because it creates things that are seemingly of no consequence, it is meaningless. Mm. And so they, there is meaningless. This is adding to the meaning crisis that, I mean, Baudrillard talks about this that as you have this procession of simulacrum, uh, for those that don't know, Baudrillard was a French philosopher. I think he wrote this in the eighties. Um, it's simulation and simulacrum, uh, is the name of the book. And he's talking about how, if you have copies of copies of copies of copies, you slowly get away from the original to the point where not only is the copy so far from reality, but you have so many copies that are so far from reality that you can't see reality whatsoever. You're totally obscured by all the advertisements in town square or Times Square, such that you wonder if trees ever grew there at all. And, and that the reality of the situation is so obscured by all of this that nothing feels real, nothing feels meaningful. And so it's not, it puts you in a state of nihilism. And that state of nihilism and meaninglessness as a result of the constant inundation of information is killing us. And the way you fix that is with, is genuine connection, not pseudo connection like Facebook, but because abstract things are pulled out of context, right? That's their nature, right? Uh, the number one isn't one can of LaCroix. That is a concrete one thing, but one is a symbol can mean any number of things it, that gives it power because it's abstract, but it also removes it from its context. And if you do that with enough people where they're removed from their context, they're just isolated. <laughs> they're just isolated, alone, and nihilistic and miserable. And now they think in their misery that no action they take is of any consequence. Why not do any number of horrendous things that are not going to help? Yeah. So you fix that by reconnecting. You reestablish the context between things. And if you can rebuild that fabric, then you can start to subdue the, the abstractness. It's an interesting concept because it's, there's another quote toward the end of the, end of the, the show where Lucy takes David outside of the city for the first time ever. You know, and it's, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like some of this can feel like it has a gravitational pull, right? Like it's inevitable to, to just spiral out into this crazy nothingness or whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, nihilistic dystopian nightmare. 
That's a whole lot of negative words all stringed together. I never thought I'd put in a sentence, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and, um, you know, and she even says it and she's like, he's like, it looks like it's like a prison of light. And it's like this, it's like this false, it's like a false idol where you have this thing where it's like with all the glitz and circumstance and, and like, Oh, well, you can get the new iPhone 24 for only a, an arm and a leg, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> or, or whatever it is that, that captures your attention. And it's like, you, it, is, it, it doesn't mean that getting the next best thing is a bad thing. But what it, it does mean is, is we should be really careful about doubling down into the materialistic worldview that, we, that capitalism and, and these other systems want to push us toward because at the end of the day those aren't the things that matter not really like those things go away once you die right like there's no you don't bring those things with you <laughs> i mean for, for all we know you don't bring anything with you <laughs> so like putting that as your like thing to achieve with the time that you have here is a is a really is it's a it's a world in which you end up feeling like nothing matters anyways. Yeah. And it's, and this is, this is a warning. I'm so happy you brought that piece up too, because that remains symbolic. That, that symbolism in mythology is old as shit as well. That's the idea of too much light of the deceitfulness of gold mm. is like King Midas is, turns everything he touches into gold. Right? So he's very powerful and creates value and wealth. Okay. But King Minus is, and we've done that with our abstract knowledge that's produced all this technology that's, that's improved many people's lives, that it's incredibly powerful tech. But there are some things King Midas shouldn't touch, which he does, which is his family. So human beings, and he turns living things into gold frozen gold, dead gold. And so he has all the material things in the world, all this thing, but now he's lost the thing that actually mattered. Okay. It's the same story as Darth Vader. It's the same story as David. It's what we're doing with our society. If we're not careful, we'll turn everything into gold. There'll be no humanity left. Yeah. I mean, as an engineer, I can't help but hope that we we can't find a way and science our way to a better future. <laughs> like because I, you know, as someone who wears wearables and sees the early stages of, of some of these things, um, and the and not, you know, I'm going to be honest. I, I really do think they provide useful information, but there is a danger here. Um, and the other thing I would say too is like we we. We all have these technologies. I mean, for instance, me and you, Joe, I'm using many systems to have this conversation. I brought this up before and I always get meta with it, but I, the the power we have as, as individuals in this society is ridiculous. Um, but that's not to say that one day the people who've created these technologies, it's like the, I mean, to, to the most real example I can give is having the keys to the nuclear launch codes right like you can you can have that power and that's all well and good because the people who first create that understand it they're close enough to it and all that stuff 
but you give it enough time, eventually someone who really doesn't have a good handle on what that means at a foundational level is going to be able to use that and be and, and not really be able to think through those things. And the unfortunate thing is I think that a lot of the technologies we have today have been given to people, the average person, who don't really stop and think about what it is they're actually using. And so that's why we have all of these struggles and growing pains that we do right now, because it is like you're giving the bull in the China shop free run of the place. <laughs> you, you know, you're letting people go online and, and just being like, well, let's go just talk about this and see what we can break yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever. And it's, and, and now we're seeing the, 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 the issues that that happens. Right. Cause like before, you know, if we roll back the clock, not even very long, right. Probably the eighties, you know, seventies, eighties, Maybe you had one or two town crazies, right? And you knew that, you know, Earl, who's going to be at the bar on every Thursday and maybe on the week, like Sunday, because his wife kicked him out of the house because she couldn't handle his shit anymore. He was going to go say his ridiculous thing and that nobody cared, right? Because that's just Earl. But now Earl can go find 10 of his other friends online and talk about their crazy things. And all of them are drinking the same Kool-Aid. And then yep. you got, you know, some people who are not quite as crazy as Earl, but, you know, got, get introduced and they're like, hmm, maybe that does sound right. Yeah. Yeah. Facebook will, <laughs> will offer you their crazy group. Be like, oh, you looked at this. Maybe you should look at this even crazier thing. So it's like, you know, it looks all well and good. But then once you start multiplying this by the, I always use this, but it's the law of large numbers, right? When you, at small scale, things can, are manageable, right? Below a hundred people, whatever you could. You can not listen to the crazies, but what do you do when you have a billion and 10% of those people are crazy? That's still a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just certainly great. So in the early 1900s, some psychologists were trying to figure out how to help kids who were um, kind of violent and had psycho psychotic tendencies, like antisocial tendencies. Um, and they thought that, okay, we can pull them out of their environment because it's their environment that's doing this to them, right? Bad family life, and bad neighborhood, they're poor, all of this. Put them in a summer camp, try to do some treatment, help out, and then see if that worked, right? So, okay, can we do the environment thing? But what ended up happening was that everyone who did the intervention got pulled out of their environment, got worse than those that had not. Hmm. And the reason was that they had taken a bunch of crazies and put them with a bunch of other crazies and they all reinforced each other. Oh no. This happens in prison, by the way, the same thing is going on in prison. But one of the reasons that that doesn't happen in day-to-day -day life, that they're not reinforcing each other is because they're spread out and pure distance between persons is, is creating a obstacle from them coalescing around each other and forming an ever escalating psychosis. Right. Until. You satisfy that the this constraint by creating the internet, which allows a whole bunch of people with like like views to congregate online and reinforce each other. And so you're crazy. By yep, no longer constrained by geography. They can all get on fucking 8chan and lose their minds until one of them snaps and shoots up a score. God, that's wild. Like, it's so crazy to me because of like... You always hear, like, the good thing, 
right? And, it, and it's the problem of the technologist who has a visionary idea and it's like, this is going to change the world. But because they're so bought into their visionary ideal, they can't see how it could be used for ill until it's too late a lot of times. Yeah. And it's like, God damn it. <laughs> right. And things are escalating at a speed now where it might be impossible to turn back by the point that we figure it out. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, things on the internet, it's the genie in the bottle, right? Like once, once things escape, you can't really put the, you know, it's like putting smoke. Like how do you put smoke back into something? <laughs> yeah, this is Pandora's box. Right, exactly. There's a better analogy. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that all is, and it's like, that's everything we've just said. All of that is like implicit in cyberpunk. Oh, yeah. It's just rain and it ain't there. I mean, maybe I'm obviously reading into this, you know, and thinking about these things at a level that maybe the show writers aren't thinking about, but that's what science fiction is meant to do, especially science fiction that's in some sense close to now. It's meant to ask, where do I actually think things are heading? Yeah. Let's imagine the ways that this might end up, see how it plays out in the simulation of my mind. And then present that to people so that it can be discussed and thought about and considered. And maybe it behaves as a warning if it comes to a conclusion like cyberpunk does that says that you'll create a system that perpetually objectifies people, makes them into objects, um, robbing them of humanity and increasing the brutality in our society with, uh, to such a degree that if you're, even if you're a good and innocent person who doesn't want to necessarily get into it. Your choices are a uh, poor rebel who slowly goes insane and becomes dangerous and destructive and is a murderer or a corporate lapdog who is also slowly going insane and becoming a murderer. Like it, the society becomes so right. dis dysfunctional, there is no choice but the bad one. It's just extremism on one end of the spectrum or the other. And then you end up getting used by some middleman who plays the plays on both sides of the fence, right? Yeah. Like, it, it reminds me of, like, the very beginning in the accident where his, his mother dies. And, you know, I don't know how old he is. He's probably being, like, his early teens, likely. Maybe 16, 17. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, when she's dead in, or dying, she doesn't know if he's, she's dead after the car accident. You see what they're, the, the, the hospital in this, in this show is called the trauma team. And it's comes up pretty explicit right away, but it's basically that to get proper medical care from this trauma team, you have to pay like a subscription, but there's tears to it. And later on in, in the series, you hear different things like, oh, this guy's platinum level trauma team. You know, every, he's got everything. And so what you basically find out is like, oh, so to get basic human rights of like medical service, it's not even for everybody. It's for people who only can afford it is what it comes down to. And he gets to go to like this, like hole in the wall doctor's office. That is not even probably a doctor's office really. And he can't even visit his own mother who's dying. And then he finds out that she's been killed. And then all he gets from her body is a can that says her name on it. And it's yeah, like, and it comes out of a, a freaking 
Yeah. <laughs> like her urn was a steel casing with like a label on it. It comes out of a vending machine. Right. And so that's what this society thinks about people at the lowest end of society. And I don't know where I heard this, but there was like, it was like, if you really want to know like, like how cultures view people, look at how it treats the poorest people in the society. Because that gives you a baseline for like where, like what it believes the value of human life is. And that might've been something like a Greek ideal, but I don't remember where I read that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I agree with that exactly because every society is going to have a certain amount of poor people and being poor blows no matter where you are. Yeah. If you're poor enough, like poverty is a sickness and to some degree it's killing everyone everywhere. Right. That has it. So it's like, I don't know if it's such a great representative of the way society is. I think the question is more something like, to what degree is this society able to treat that? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, what's the strength of the middle class? What Does it have a safety net maybe? Um, how does it deal with that? One way that it could deal with that is to provide incentives, like, yeah, whatever. I mean, I, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of telling about like the world of cyberpunk, right? Like it doesn't seem like there is a middle class. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is it's like philosophically that pops up with that scene, with the, his mom being distributed in a vending machine is you can ask, okay, why is that wrong? Ooh. Like, why is it wrong for us to create a, what is it, a funeral system right. that is max efficiency, right? It's not efficient having funerals or putting people on the ground and taking up land. It's not efficient um, to stand around all day it's to, to display the body or any of these things. So why bother, hmm. right? Do you not want the most mechanized, most capable um, system, the most efficient system? It's like... I'd say no, <laughs> because there are higher things than this. Like the more you described it, the more I'm like, oh, that sounds like a, t like, that's one thing. I don't think we need to automate. <laughs> that's where the, like, that's what the show is suggesting is that the automation can go that far. I mean, you're not wrong. You die in a hospital. The bed just goes like this. The body slides down and land in an urn. <laughs> oh, it just shapes out the, the stuff into an urn and it comes out of a vending machine. It pops out the other side. There's your mom. <laughs> it's like i thought of that two seconds some engineer who has terrible people skills has already thought of this <laughs> like let's just let's streamline this process doc and if you lose an intrinsic sense of human value there's no reason why you shouldn't go there and that's one of the big parts of the show too is that the show is very good at displaying how that society has no, doesn't value life at all. There's no value for human life in that it's replacing all the humanity with machine parts in that even any number of people die at any given time and it's just total anarchy and it's seen as sort of inconsequential. Who cares? Oh, one more crazy person dead, one more whatever. It's like the Soviet Union, <laughs> like people just dying left and right, whatever, man, in droves. And things can go there. Things have gone there in history many, many times. It's wild.
that's why we should not <laughs> believe in a utopian ideal does not <laughs> really get us to any sort of <laughs> good future typically <laughs> you need something to hire you need something right. that can account for can account for the inherent suffering and loss of people and the terrible experiences um that creates tools to mitigate these things but doesn't confuse the means for the end because all this technology can be good in its right place in that we recognize that these things are in service to us and that they're not the point <laughs> that yeah. these things have to be an expression of our humanity not something that usurps and contains and destroys it technology isn't destiny and we shouldn't let it pull us to where it wants to go <laughs> we're the stewards of it not the other way around <laughs> and if if a some tech is making is actively acting against the best interests of humanity or is exploiting our vulnerabilities cough cough definitely not subtle facebook and instagram <laughs> And Twitter, <laughs> social media categorically, <laughs> and they should be done away with. We should all just sign off, pull that plug, right, or just drop out, get away. I took I took all social media off my phone. Nice. I I will look at every so often. I'll get a text message from a friend saying, "Did you see the message I sent you on Instagram?" And then I'll go onto Instagram, see that I have a whole bunch of messages and notifications, and they go nah, and then close it. <laughs> I'm two steps away from downloading all my photos and throwing it all out. This is useless to me. You should look into, if you don't care about all these apps, you should look into uh, what's called a light phone. It's basically just like a screen. It's like an OG phone, basically, but it looks more like a smartphone. But it has I still like my phone for things like the Aura Ring, right? Yeah. I like this. This is tech that helps me track my health and all and my sleep quality and these things. It doesn't distract me. There's no screen on this. That's the point. That we right. another separate podcast we could do on wearable tech because there's there's two delineations that seem to be happening within like the wearable space. And it's like Can I make a guess? What? Amazon has a screen on theirs. They don't actually. Oh what? I'm shocked by that. No, but why not why? Because they copied Woop. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> They're like, ooh, that looks like a good idea. Let's make money. <laughs> but they're basically oh. just a Fitbit, more or less. <laughs> the I, Apple Watch, though. Yeah, I'm, I mean, and here's the thing. It's like there's there's two versions of this you can go, where you can go like the accessory piece of like where do we want our – like how do we want our technology to be used, right? And it's like do you want it to be a – an accessory that is like, oh, look at me. I have the new fancy thing. Or mm. like, do you want it to be this thing that provides you useful information, but is non-invasive to your life? The yeah. best, in my opinion, and, and to companies like Whoop and Aura Ring, the best wearable is the one you forget you're even wearing. It's the one you wear most often so that you get the long-term trending data. Because it's not in the short term that's, that these things are important. It's in the long term so you can see trends and be like, ooh, it looks like during, you know, holiday season, I drink a lot more and my sleep goes to shit. I wonder why. 
I, love I don't know. That experience. <laughs> <laughs> Am I literally just made up an example? So I, <laughs> I have no idea if that's true or has data behind it, but that's just what came to mind. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't match it. <laughs> but like, and like the point is like, at least with Whoop, they're transitioning now to doing what's called anywhere technology. So they have shirts and underwear and bras and stuff that have pouches where you can take off your whoop in like two seconds. So I'm doing it right now on camera so you can see it. So this is the whole sensor. This can go inside of a little pouch, either in like boxers or bra or shorts. Um, and it slots right in and presses right up on your skin like it would normally on your wrist, but it disappears. All you have to do is take it out for charging mm -hmm. it then. And you can put it like where it would be for a heart monitor. Uh, like, yeah, like the bra, or, the bra would go, it goes like right here on the ribs. I, I don't have my camera. So okay. like, but they're designing it so that they can measure heart rate accurately anywhere on the body. That's cool. It doesn't need to be like, you know, where we used to wear those old heart rate straps for when we do the mile run or whatever. And yeah, that's wet great. the awkward yeah. sensors and stuff that that's going away. Cause these are really accurate these days. And huh. like, part of this stuff is like, this is where the philosophy and proper stewardship and, and I mean, at the end of the day, philosophy of like, what are we actually doing with this tech and what do we want to be as a technology company? They're not trying to be like Apple and IBM and like, I want to make the best gadget that could, we can charge, you know, a thousand dollars for the next generation. They want to be able to provide they have their values flipped. Like I see with like these, it's that I get to exploit the technology to better my life. Whereas other ones are trying to figure out how to exploit me. They're using their technology as a means of exploiting me. Right. And, and it's like, that's the fundamental difference of technology. It's it BlackRock is doing this. BlackRock is a invest. It's like, it's a real estate company, this global real, real estate company. They're just buying up everything, everything that they can get their hands on because they want to they don't want you to ever own anything. They want renters for life because they know that they can make more money that way than if they sell a house. There's the megacorp in, in beginning, right? Yeah. And the, the what is it? The um, World Econ Economic. I think that's what it, World Economic Forum. So oh, no, WEF maybe. It might be WEF. Um, one of the founders or something said, um, they won't own anything and they'll love it. Oh, I heard about this. This is with um, one the guy who started WeWork is starting is this company. Klaus Schwab guys, I think who I'm quoting. Yeah, the guys are it's a weird. He's kind of a hack. He doesn't really know what he's doing, and yeah. you know, and this crazy company is valued at like a billion dollars. Done for like actually making a business <laughs> yet or something crazy. You know, it's all the speculation, fun bullshit. Great. And and, and it, well, what and I and I might sound a little more harsh than I normally am because. For me, as someone who's about to be in their thirties, who hasn't has very little hope of owning a home <laughs> in the near future, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like when yeah. all of our parents had homes by the time they were in their early twenties or could have owned a home, you know, if they had so saved up money, it's like, okay, cool. Like, and, and most of the economic data shows that owning a home is what gives you economic freedom long-term to be able to ride out struggle. Yeah. This is, um, this reminds, I like Tesla, but, uh, for a while there, Tesla 
you couldn't work on your Tesla is considered like proprietary software. You can't go in there and, and play it with fail it. It states that if you tampered with it, it would just brick your car basically. Right. So you don't have, once you own your car, you only kind of own your car because you can't take it where you want. You can't work on it yourself. It isn't yours to play with. It's Tesla's to play with and they get to charge you for it. But I think a judge recently actually ruled in favor of an owner of his car saying that you have a right to work on these things. Interesting. That if you own it, I, I don't remember the details of this. It's been a while since I've I read about it, but. Right to repair is a very important distinction. And this, is ha this has been happening for years within the computer industry, um, specifically with Apple, because Apple has been notoriously bad at allowing like third-party repair shops, let like letting them like work on Apple products and like hmm. to get Apple certified as a repair shop for like small mom and pop computer repair, it was like not feasible or not profitable for, for someone to go through the rigmarole to be, you know, Apple certified, whatever the hell that means, right? Like it's a problem and, and it's like, we're kind of tangenting away from this stuff, but I think cyberpunk is kind of like this, it's like the, all the way the extreme edge case out here that allows us to kind of wiggle our way back to being like, hey, look at all the problems we're facing today because that gets us to there. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be like a, you know, a doomsayer or something, but... <laughs> no, I think that um, this stuff has been bothering me for a long time, but I think that uh, it shouldn't bother people. And that if they're not concerned about this, then I think I worry that they're a little too, you know. No, yeah. Putting blinders on. And yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, kind of just one of the things that I remember, like, as I finished school, one of the things that really struck, struck me, like I had just gotten into the wearable space and was like, oh my God, this is, this is technology I can get behind because like going to school for engineering and things like that, I was not really a product person like i liked being able to like use math to solve problems and all that kind of stuff but like for me being able to like i don't know squeeze out performance out of something or whatever like it just didn't really strike me the the most interesting way like to me it was like you would look at these office spaces and the giant factories and be like wow look at how crazy it is that we've been able to make these hyper efficient processes to make cars or whatever right like, I'm sure you've seen videos of the Tesla factories and auto factories that are just basically robotic arms everywhere. It looks like something, you, you know, you wouldn't ever expect to see, but yet we've done it. Right. But then I, I kind of took a step back and I've been like, well, we've done all of this, like, efficiency stuff and, like, you know, worked out every kink so that, the, you know, no part is standing still for more than a second or whatever, right? But, but have we done that for, like, people? And, like, how do we improve the lives of the individuals that make all this shit happen because it's like we're wasting like how much time is wasted like possible outcome is wasted on people who like are burnt out feel like they're not sleeping well or you know have shitty whatever like they're not working out enough or they're just not moving enough it doesn't need to be working out specifically like the quality problem we're missing is the human element of the quality problem it's like how do you improve the humans that actually do all this stuff and we've like left that up, like, hey, let them figure it out. And we decided to say, all this we've learned with science and technology to say, eh, we've been doing fine right. forever. But instead, we say, fuck it and say, never mind. We don't, that, eh. like, oh, wait, 
maybe if we help them sleep better and they get to work on time and they, and they feel fulfilled at their, at their job such that they're not burnt out by the end of the time they like leave work and then they go home with more energy and vitality so that the friends and family and, and their kids or whoever that they get to spend their time with, they feel more fulfilled. And all of a sudden you have all these ripple effects because people feel more in control of their lives. And then all these problems that we have that we seem like we need to get more more done in, in the time, you know, more done in a 24-hour period, all of a sudden we start making leaps and bounds because all of a sudden people start fixing their own shit because you let them fix their own shit and give them the ability to see like, wow, I know how to like take control of my life and do small little tiny tweaks that maybe it's only like I got 30 minutes of extra sleep, but that 30 minutes of extra sleep could be all the difference they need to start eating healthier, to have a little bit more time to go to the gym or do whatever else it is that they think is most important lives that has the biggest bang for their buck. It's like, but somehow we just forgot about that, especially when we had the pandemic that we could have easily put a PSA out there for say, hey, people, go walking and it will reduce your anxiety. You'll get sunlight exposure and you'll get cardiovascular training and all these extra things. But no, we decided to, to just put our heads in the sand and say, nope. Yeah, there's no, it's like there's no room. For, Sorry. <laughs> no, I get it. That's, it feels like people are being crowded out. That's what it feels like. Like we're pushing people out of everything. Yeah. And we just, we just want to, we just, just, oh, just turn it all off. Let something else handle this. Oh, like we don't even want to be there. Like I can't help but think that the, the nature abhors a vacuum. And the general lethargy of our generation has created one that is being filled by technology. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. Who knows? It's wild. But I mean, at the end of the day, to kind of leave it on a pause note, that's why I think we're doing these conversations more now because I think we have, I mean, clearly we have things to say because <laughs> we wouldn't be able to talk for an hour and a half. And, um, you know, it's like, okay, if there's going to be a whole bunch of noise put on the internet, Maybe we can try and put something that's not just noise and who knows, maybe we get 10 people that watch this and start thinking about it and make a change or whatever it is, mm. you know, um, or they hate it and it's fine, but like, <laughs> it's better to have a hater and, and maybe get someone talking about it than, than to not ever say it at all. Right. And, you know, it's at least we're trying at the very end of the day, right? Like you can't, you can't know your impact unless you try to have an impact, right? <laughs> I agree. Bam. With that hour and a half, I know want to call it. It just flew by, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, till next week, everyone. Thank you all for joining for the five viewers that sporadically joined in here and there. Uh, appreciate you. You're not here anymore, but Hey, five is better than zero. <laughs> Bam! Stop this. <laughs>